You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. If you have your Bible, you can open it up to Matthew 7. I mentioned a few weeks ago that we were going to land the plane on the Sermon on the Mount. Well, today is that day. (laughs) Today is that day after 30-plus sermons. And God's Word says to us at the end of Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. For He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated as Rob comes up for the preaching of God's Word. We do have a restless kids' room across the hallway, if that serves you parents. Also, we have kids' sermon notes and totes. I need to take care of a piece of housekeeping real fast so that I don't forget. My wife gave me instructions for something to do, and I need some witnesses. When was the last time you sat and truly marveled at something God has done or at some aspect of his character, sat and just pondered? I do it a lot, probably because I don't work hard enough at other things, but I spend a lot of time sitting and thinking about stuff. Usually it has something to do with music or sounds or some other form of patterns. I'm a pattern guy. And I look at patterns, and they just show me over and over and over again God's design. Um, Taming sound waves in a recording studio, because I record, was one of the things that led me to, to patterns. And I discovered the golden ratio, which is the best room you can design to minimize wave problems. And that led me to the concept of phi, which is like pi, but not as much. And that led me to Fibonacci sequences. And we see Fibonacci sequences in the spiral of a conch shell. And we see them in the seed spirals in a sunflower. And we see them in the pod shape of a pine cone. And we see it in the shape of the human ear or the double spiral of our galaxy. We see it in the layout of a piano keyboard. Mm, Sorry, geeking out. Back up. But seriously, let's ponder sound for just a minute. Boiled down, all sound is is vibrating air, right? As that air vibrates faster and slower, we get pitches, high and low sounds. As more air vibrates, the sound gets louder. When you create ratios from this fundamental pitch, you get what we call overtones and timbre. Timbre is what lets me tell a piano from a trumpet. It lets me tell Sean from Charisse. It lets me tell an ambulance from an ice cream truck. 
Sound gets a little tricky when you're in high school and you're on the phone with a girl you really like and about to ask her for a date, but then you realize at the last moment from a sound, a very specific sound, that it's her little sister that you're about to ask for a date and not her. That's awkward. She was just messing with my head. I marvel that God designed that to happen. Not the messing with my head part, the vibrating air being sound. God spoke sound into existence. Think about that. God used sound to create sound. Are you marveling a little bit yet? To sit and just ponder that sound came from sound and that God created it by his voice. Where you are right now in your thinking is going to help us today as we understand what we're looking, about, looking at here in Matthew chapter 7. Today we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. First glass, glance, it seems pretty anticlimactic. Sean read the verses with great inflection, but when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. doesn't seem deeply profound on the surface, right? This is quite possibly chapter 5 of Matthew through the end of chapter 7 here. The most profound and controversial teaching that the people had ever heard. But we don't see fireworks. We don't see a huge ovation. There's no Jesus for king chants. Why not? Matthew just writes... What he just read. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. If you're anything like me, you read this passage, you comprehend the meaning, but you don't really take the time to process what's being said. We read the words, but we don't always let them speak to us. So when Matthew says that the crowds were astonished, What does he mean? What does God want us to get? There are three words used in the New Testament for astonished or amazed. We see those come up. Matthew used the one of the three that means struck with astonishment as if struck by a blow. How many of you have had the wind knocked out of you before? Me too, by another girl. Who I said, you can hit me if you, she was angry at something and said, I feel like hitting something. I said, you can hit me. She caught me right there. 16 years old, thought I was a dead man. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't do anything but stand there. That's kind of what happened to the crowd. They didn't know what had hit them when Jesus taught. It's the feeling of something so unique that you stop dead in your tracks. It's to be gobsmacked, thunderstruck, speechless, bowled over, blown away, flabbergasted, agape, staggered. We have a gesture that's currently used that demonstrates this. Right? There's another one, the mic drop. They demonstrate that concept. We have a term, 
among those others, it blew my mind. My mind is blown as we do that at the same time. There's even an emoji for it with half a skull gone. (laughs) Married men. It's like on your wedding day when you're standing in the church and you see your wife come in and start down the aisle. You were knocked out because she was a knockout. Now, are you with me in Matthew now a little bit as we understand the depth of this wonder that the crowds were experiencing at Jesus' teaching? Speechless, dumbfounded, stuck right there, unable to escape it and not sure what had just happened. The thing that arrested them was Jesus' teaching. Matthew tells us that. They were astonished at his teaching. Which makes us stop and ask, what was so unique and different about this teaching? What was so compelling? What was so astonishing? Matthew tells us in verse 29, it was the personal authority that Jesus had that stopped them. Andrew McLaren, in his uh, commentary called Expositions, tells us that the scribes ruled the whole life of Israel with tyrannical power. They sat in Moses' seat and claimed all manner of sway and control. But in their highest claims, they could only set themselves up as being commentators upon and expositors of the law. They had all this power and authority, but at very best, they were commentators and expositors. Let's go back to chapter 5 for just a few minutes. We're going to do some reviewing to see what it was that was so unique about what Jesus was saying that the people were stopped as they were. Starting in verse 21, we have six sections where Jesus takes the people to the law, the Pentateuch, the writings, the prophets, and even their oral traditions. Each one of these six sections is set off by, you have heard that it was said. And then he goes on to say, he quotes the teachings and interpretations of the law. In verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. In verse 27, you heard it's that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. In verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. In verse 35, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus, right after each one of these things, says, But I say to you. Why is that so astonishing? And how does that statement, but I say to you, relate to his authority? Let's go back to the scribes for a minute. They had authority because they could read and write down the scriptures. 
Because they were able to read and write the scriptures, they were often called on to interpret the scriptures. Uh, they acted much as lawyers do today with cases between people. Their authority and credibility was tied to previous rabbis' teachings and who they had studied under. They used that to support their interpretations. From, from what I was reading, it's kind of a case of, well, Rabbi so-and-so studied with Rabbi so-and-so who studied with Rabbi so-and-so, and this was the teaching that they based, and these rabbis studied on this, and this was what they taught. And as we compare those things, so this is the teaching that the people were comparing to what Jesus was doing. And so we can see, as we look at that, that the scribes along with the Pharisees were, just as McLaren said, commentators, expositors, explaining scripture that had been given them based on what they had learned from others. But when Jesus says, but I say to you, what authorities is he citing? Himself. No other sources. Himself. Jesus is saying that he is the base of the truth that he's speaking. His authority is not based on his studies or rabbinical lineage or what he had learned from others. It's based on his own person. He is the source of scriptures. He is the word of God incarnate. He's not a commentator. He's the legislator. He's the law creator. That's what left the people astonished. His authority was himself. Jesus gave them further reason, I believe, to be amazed. Still in chapter 5, let's go back to verse 17. We read in 17 to 20, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus taught that he didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but that he came to fulfill both of them, both the law and the prophets. As we look at that, those, those two divisions of the Old Testament along with the writings, the law is God's legal requirement, right? It's what's necessary for somebody to be accepted as righteousness, which we understand is impossible. You can't do all those things all the time, so you can't be righteous because of yourself. Jesus is really clear about that. But he says they won't be done away with, they'll be fulfilled 
And the prophets were the teachings that pointed Israel to their future, especially to the coming Messiah. Again, those things need to be fulfilled, and Jesus is the one who does that. Who could fulfill them? Not us, right? How many prophecies have been written about you? Except your high school yearbook, there probably aren't any, right? And did that one come true? I never ended up in jail. That wasn't in the prophecy, just (laughs) making a point. Only Jesus could truly fulfill the law because he was truly righteous. Jesus is the focus of all prophecy. As we're talking about authority, Jesus is the only one with the kind of authority that's necessary to fulfill the law and the prophets. And it's that authority, that power that is so unique and different from what the scribes and Pharisees possessed. Their only power came from what they were able to convince the people to give them. Their power only came from their ability to understand and process and present information to the people. It wasn't intrinsic within themselves. It only came from outside. And then here is Jesus teaching with true power and authority. His citation was himself. Right to the very core. That's why they were dumbfounded. That's why we need to ponder more so that we too, I think, are dumbfounded. I love to just sit, as I said earlier, things that seem unrelated put me in awe of God's greatness. Who thought of these patterns? God did. Who makes them function? Who keeps all those planets from crashing into each other and the entire universe functioning the way it does? Who designed a baby to grow and develop and become adults? Who is capable of that? And we get it, yeah, 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 God, 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 let's go, right? No, let's don't go. Let's stop like the people were. And as I was reflecting on, on this, this truth, why were they astonished? It's because Jesus' power was totally different. I was reminded of Dean's sermon last week and the two aspects of holiness, God's moral character and God's otherliness, right? Now think about that. If you think about the Sermon on the Mount, how is it usually presented? A series of moral teachings, Right? These are the moral teachings that if you follow, you will be a good person. You will be a God follower. Fair assessment? But look at this. Jesus' otherliness is even more important than the moral purity. And I think that's what the real message of the Sermon on the Mount is. Jesus isn't just a great moral teacher. He's not just giving us a list of the things that we should do to be considered holy and righteous. He is other. He is so far above us 
and beyond us that we, like the people in the crowds, should be astonished, biblically astonished, mind-blown, flabbergasted, thunderstruck, dumbfounded, mic drop. Are we? And how does that apply then besides pondering God more to our daily lives? Well, let's go back to Matthew 5 again for a minute. Application of the Sermon on the Mount. Do you battle with anger or lust or retaliation? Those are addressed in chapter 5. Do you hate your enemies? That's verses 43 to 48. Are you anxious? In chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Do you think more about your job and success at your job than you do about your spiritual life? That's verses 19 to 24 in chapter 6. Are you judgmental? Chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Do you feel that because you're suffering or persecuted that God doesn't love you? When instead you should realize that as it says in the Beatitudes, you're blessed. Chapter 5, verses 2 to 12. When we see Jesus like the crowds did, when we grasp his otherliness, we see our desperate need and the inability within ourselves, of ourselves, to be holy. That otherliness, the power that Jesus has, that he gives us at salvation is where we find the reason and the ability to be different. It's not something we produce based on a list. It's the power of the Holy Spirit transforming us to be like our Creator. To be holy because He's holy. Because of that reason and ability to be different, we can see our sins forgiven and cleansed. And that realization, I'm only capable of this biblical goodness that we're shown in the Sermon on the Mount through what Jesus has done on my behalf. It's the only way. The Sermon on the Mount is more than a moral standard that we should seek to attain. It's the truth that we should let the true holiness, that otherliness of Jesus, transform us. That we let him make our thoughts and actions different than they were through his power. Our world goes fast. The love of Jesus is sometimes so overemphasized and Jesus' friendship with us 
emphasized, which is true. But it takes us away from our need to understand that holiness of God, that uniqueness, that power that comes from itself. That's a place of worship. That's a place of worth and understanding. That's what God desires of us and gives us in Christ. We're blessed because we have a Savior. We can deal with sin because we have a Savior. We have hope for the future, not just a bunch of religious restrictions because we have a Savior. We have hope because of His otherliness. I trust as we finish the Sermon on the Mount that we see that it's not just teaching us be good. It's teaching us live in Christ. It's teaching us that that's our place of strength and hope and life. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.